Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thanks for joining. I am delighted today to speak with Richard York, a professor of sociology and environmental studies at the University of Oregon. Richard's uh, scholarly work has been extremely influential, focusing a lot on alternative energy, renewable energy, and the extent to which that can address our climate crisis. Richard studied psychology as an undergraduate and earned a degree from Southern Oregon State College. He has a PhD in sociology from Washington State University. He's been a professor at the University of Oregon since 2002, and his insights and expertise are really engaging and interesting. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Richard York, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you, Brian. I'm really glad to be here today. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. And I want to just start, based on your own interests and research and education and background, how do you see a chasm or chasms in our society? Well, I think um, obviously a major chasm from that metaphor is about um, social inequalities. And that's on multiple dimensions. We often are well aware of the huge income inequalities uh, race, gender, um, colonial history. I think that really comes down in practice then to huge inequalities of power, of who controls what happens mostly in society. And I think that's probably that chasm of power is at the root of our environmental and uh, social problems. Can you say more about that in terms of the root issue? Like, how is that actually leading to problems of inequality, social unrest, social well-being, but also the environmental problems? Yeah, but I think if you think about how there's not one social direction or there's not one thing that's good for society as a whole. There's different segments of society and different people are benefited or harmed differently by decisions. And where you have a world dominated by very few people and you know, the, the, with very high income inequality and concentration of political power, when decisions are made by a few people, they are making decisions that are typically in their best interest that may or may not help many others. And so I think the challenge for us, if we're going to make better decisions about how we proceed in the world, um, we need some you know, deep democratization of how we uh, evaluate things and what directions we go as a society. So I want to ask you a little bit more about inequality. A lot of people would say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with climate change directly. How, how do you see inequality and climate change as being linked? Well, so on the, the point, the first point I, I started with, I think that has to do with who gets to make decisions, but also, of course, the very fact that um, most Resource consumption in general, and particularly uh, fossil fuel use and pollution emissions, come from a small share of humanity. So that's to say, particularly concentrated in a few affluent nations, are responsible for most greenhouse gas emissions. Whereas, you know, the very large masses of uh, poor people across the world contribute relatively small amounts to our uh, environmental crises. So there's a very blunt uh, distinction there of it's not that when we talk about we as a whole lead to these problems most people contribute very modestly to our problems where uh, a, a few particularly the affluent and in those in affluent nations uh, have a very large effect 
So another related issue to this is the issue of class. And we don't talk too much about that in society anymore. But I'm wondering if you can speak to what is class and how is class related to all of this? Yeah, so there's many different ways class is defined in in the social sciences. Um, And, you know, one of the, the, the foundational ideas, of course, is connected with Karl Marx which defines class as to do with uh, the relations to the means of production, uh, whether we are uh, owners of the the means of production or, like most people, are predominantly people have to sell their labor um, to to make a living and therefore um, work for whatever compensation they can get. And so I think that that actually is a helpful starting point to thinking about issues to do with uh, environmental problems that the people who tend to own the means of production have a lot of control over what decisions are made about what is uh, produced. So when we talk about a class struggle, struggles for workers, workers' rights, which we see increasingly prominent in recent years, things like pushing for changes in the minimum wage, um, getting better benefits for workers, getting better family leave, uh, vacations, those are classic class struggles in an economic sense, but those relate to the environment to the extent they have to do with who controls what uh, production decisions are made. And what about politically? I'm wondering, does class resonate any longer in our modern society, do you think? I think that's actually one of the challenges we have is that particularly in America, people aren't strongly class identified, right? It's almost a cliche we often note that everyone in the United States says thinks they're middle class. And that would include people who are millionaires and include people who are, you know, decidedly low paid workers. Um, so I think that's a as a as an analytical property, class is very real. Our our social positions relative to, to affluence, relative to ownership of the means of production, relative to having to work. It's very fundamental, real phenomenon that shapes our lives. But that's separate from how people commonly see and identify. And I do think that's you know, one of the perversities of our, um, it, particularly in the United States, current political situation, where a fair proportion of working class whites uh, identify often with the, the affluent group, particularly like with Donald Trump and that kind of conservative uh, tradition, even though that, uh, that, that that the billionaire class, the Donald Trump class, is not actually looking out for them. Yeah, so what do you think explains that? I mean, obviously, that's not directly related to environmental issues, but I think that analysis you're providing is quite important and, and has some relevance for environmental outcomes. So how do you explain that? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's a hard question. I mean, I don't think there's an easy explanation there. Uh, I mean, I think you can see some of this is, you know, the Trumpian movement plays on a lot of toys of emphasizing racial identity um, and the age-old trope of blaming immigrants. And so there's a, some kind of uh, the ugly uh, racial and cultural politics that the right wing plays to try and shift the blame for people's life circumstances to other people who actually themselves don't have a lot of power. I think by one of the basic conditions that make some, I mean, by no means all, but many working class white people prone to, to sympathizing with uh, certain right wing movements is the reality that since the, you know, the maybe around the 1970s, uh, there's been very heavy wage stagnation for with a working class. 
in, in particularly in America. So a lot of the the white working class they don't feel very privileged. They feel um, you know life is you know a lot of things have not gone well for them. You see the rural the rural working class and they feel excluded from uh, the kind of system. And that's true, but I think of course that's predominantly generated by the the rise of inequality and the power of the, the elite, the billionaire class that has made it so most wealth generated through growing technological advances and production is concentrated in the hands of a few. Um, so there's something that the white working class has to be upset about. The problem is they've been lured in in some ways uh, by these right-wing narratives to blame the wrong people. They they have often, uh, are, and in fact, that's through you know, acts of encouragement by the, the Donald Trump-type people, um, to blame immigrants for the decline of their condition or blame you know, feminists or um, you know, immig- or, uh, people of color and affirmative action, when in fact, I think the the white working class should have a lot more solidarity with immigrants and and people of color and recognizing they're actually all in a similar boat relative to having to work in uh, vulnerable positions where most of the value from their labor is going up to to the hands of a few people. I want to ask you a little bit about um, a lot of your insights are generated from your work. You're a, a, a social scientist at a university. I guess I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what you see as the role of education and higher education in particular in society today. Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think we hope, right, as educators, we really hope that we make uh, a difference in, in people's lives and help them see and understand the world better. And I do think higher education can play an important role and often does. Of course, there's a lot of pressures on higher education. One is simply it's, it's harder and harder to access for um, for people of a, of a lower income background. I mean, uh, there's less and less funding support. Tuition rates have gone up. So there's one big barrier. And of course, as you hear a lot in the news about the, the debt crisis for students, right? That people, uh, I, in fact, I've been a professor for 20 years and I still have not paid off my student loans. Um, I will have them paid off when I'm uh, 56 years old. Um, so there's simply access to higher education is a problem. Uh, I think also that the universities are facing a lot of internal pressures on you know, states have defunded a lot of education, which is part of why their costs have gone up. But that's also pushed universities to act in a more business-like way. And they're often calculating you know, ways of how they lower costs, which has put a lot of pressure on those of us who, are, who work in the system. What do you say to the people who argue that academics are just in an ivory tower, that it's not really connected to society, that the research that you and others are doing don't really have any practical implications? How do you respond to that? Um, I can understand the frustrations felt by you know people who have low incomes, working hard jobs, that it can seem academics have a, a good situation. And, and indeed, there's many, many good things about our, our life experiences. But I do think we need to recognize that education, that the roles we play in society have very broad-based benefits. For one thing, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of research and scholarship happens in this world in private for private corporations, where the research is directed at doing things to make greater profits for those corporations. And the knowledge they gain is 
often proprietary. It is not made available to the public. Whereas those of us who work in uh, universities and particularly public universities, typically all of our work is publicly available, is produced with an eye. Many of us are very much focused on doing things for the public good, um, to helping people understand their world. So I think it's very important to have this this context of a a scholarly community and academic world that thinks beyond just the immediacy of producing profits and jobs. So I think academia has a very important role to play. And I think the challenge that makes what I think would be left and there'd be less resentment in some circles against academia if we had a better commitment to a public mandate to make access to higher education affordable so that many people don't feel excluded from it. I want to move on a little bit to your actual research, which I think is super interesting and I would argue quite relevant for um, society, as, as you just described. I'm curious, can you just give us an overview of how you describe your own work and your sort of... Um, the, the direction of your research? Yeah, so I, I, mean, I do quite a lot of things. I mean, I'm, you know, I, if I were to put myself in a category, I'm an environmental sociologist, but I think I'm very interdisciplinary. I draw on a lot of different work. And you know, broadly speaking, I am trying to understand how, what, what features of society um, contribute or help us under, help explain our relationship to the environment and how societies are shaped by environmental context. And indeed, actually, that societies are not separate from environments, we're part of them. Humans are part of ecosystems, not separate from them. So to understand the ecological context of, of social life. And in an immediate, you know, in a more, in a more specific sense, given our um, you know, rather large and serious global environmental crises, global climate change most noteworthy among them, uh, I'm interested in trying to understand what types of things do we need to change in society so that we can dramatically alter our use of energy, eliminate fossil fuels, and develop some kind of social world that is not dependent on the current unsustainable and destructive uh, use of, 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 of nature. You've done a lot of work around renewable energy, in particular wind, solar, and so forth. And the argument is, we just need more of that, and that will help us address this climate change issue. Can, can you characterize the results of some of your research on that very question? Yeah, so that's a, that's a lot of where my work is found. I mean, that's, I am very interested in that. Is particularly how do we think of the use of technologies in addressing environmental problems? And I think there's a common assumption um, that, particularly in America, but I think it's more common. It's so common around the world that technologies will solve our environmental problems. And in the case of uh, climate change, it's that we can develop renewable energy sources and those will easily push out fossil fuels. And the research I've done, which is I've done a lot of quantitative work looking at nations over time to see what happens where nations develop non-fossil energy sources. And what I've seen is generally the pattern is when you nations that increase their non-fossil energy production, it typically just is part of contributing to growth in overall energy use rather than in pushing out fossil fuels. So what you'll find is a common condition where fossil fuel use will grow perfectly well, 
alongside other energy forms. And I call that the displacement paradox. The paradox being we would expect that if you produce more of a renewable energy, it would help push out non-renewable energy, but instead it doesn't necessarily. I think a lot of that really has to do with um, the very nature of political economic regimes that, of course, most modern economies, or probably all modern economies, tend to be focused on growth and capitalist ones focused on profit-making for corporations. So the benefits gained from new technologies are not per se typically converted to conservation or um, improvements in the human condition necessarily, but rather they're focused on increasing production and consumption and improving profitability. So I think that we need to not frame our uh, environmental problems, in particular energy problems, as per se technical in nature, even though obviously technologies matter a lot. But see that how the technology is deployed depends on the uh, political economic relations, which brings me back to how we started this conversation on something to do with inequalities of power. So, yeah, I think this is really interesting because, you know, the average listener, when they think about climate change and what to do about it, I mean, everybody is told we just need more alternative energy. That's one of the primary sort of solutions that's before. There's a lot of energy and resources put towards that. I guess I'm curious why, if it's empirically the case that that doesn't displace fossil fuels and doesn't in the end actually help with climate change in the way people think it will, why is it still the prominent um, sort of solution put forward, do you think? Well, I, I think one of the reasons is it's, it's apolitical and not threatening to um, people in power, right? If we just simply say, uh, let's just produce more wind power, that's not that threatening. If we actually said, you know, the truth is, Fossil fuel companies never had the right to extract fossil fuel from the ground in the first place and pollute the world. They never had the right to claim those assets. That we really shouldn't allow that to continue. If we're going to make a serious, rapid transmission away from fossil fuels, which we need to do, we need to really to prevent the pumping of oil, the digging of coal, and. That is, of course, a very big political challenge that challenges a lot of capital interests. Whereas simply providing a little more funding for solar power lets us move on without actually challenging root causes. It's easy for politicians to support because it doesn't really threaten uh, their their backing, which is, you know, we have increasing amounts of money entwined in our political system. So I'm wondering how this information has been received by groups who are proposing solutions to climate change. That is to say, like the mainstream environmental organizations, are they taking your work and acting on the results or or, or not? I think typically not. And in fact, that's, um, I think, one of the the challenges we find that since, I think environmental movement used to be more radical than it is in many ways, that to try, I think the environmental groups have struggled to get relevance and political power, which is understandable. The problem is to get that relevance and political power, they have conformed to the status quo and how things are done. So to get into influence, you know, the senators and co- people in Congress, they have focused more on uh, what they see, I think, as more practical solutions rather than challenging deeper aspects of, of uh, the economic system. And what can, I understand how that can happen. I understand the pressure on, on 
you know, nonprofit organizations, environmental organizations, they need to get some kind of funding to make their, you know, to do their activities. They want to see, you know, things they can detect having effects. Um, so I think in that sense, it's kind of a, a sad outcome that has, there's, there's reasons they would drift toward it. So I'm, I'm wondering, based on what you just stated, are, are you suggesting that the environmental movement is not terribly effective anymore? Um, I think, I don't want to say ineffective. It's effect, it can be effective at some things, but I think it's not, it doesn't challenge the deeper reasons behind our environmental problems. So it's taken much more modest goals. And that's where it considers success is getting more wind power rather than challenging uh, the power of fossil fuel companies very directly. So I do think it has stepped back from some of the grander ideas of more radical social transformation towards um, what might be called ecological, sensible living, uh, toward things that fit more easily into our kind of neoliberal um, political and economic paradigm. The outcomes in society are getting more dire. The IPCC report recently came out um, suggesting it's quite serious. Given the situation of the, the environmental movement being somewhat more complacent, do you see any indication that that's changing given the scale and the severity of the problems we, we face? I don't know. I mean, I fear not. I mean, one of the problems which we've seen is, uh, you know, simple scientific evidence. It doesn't necessarily have the effect on the public or people in power as it should. Because I think it's been, even though, the, you know, of course, science has advanced, we know more and more. But I think the science had already quite well understood, even 20 years ago, the severity of the problem in broad terms. It's not that we didn't understand how serious these problems are. It's that there are capital interests that have distinct incentives to undermine action on that. And so that that put very specific, like the climate denial movement, very much corporate funded. And that's both to try and deny the issue to the public, to confuse the public about the issue, but it's very much tied in specifically to influencing uh, political people and political power. So um, I would like to think, yes, of course we should. It's, it's so glaringly clear that we have this severe crisis and it gets clearer every year. Uh, sadly, it, it doesn't seem to have the effects we would, you know, one would like in a, in, a, in a sensible world. So if society was going to change and you use the word transformation, which is essentially moving away from the current status quo to something, did or, something different to have different ends that ameliorate the problems of climate change and so forth. How do you think about social change and what's required for social change in your view? You know, that is kind of the biggest and most important question. And it's one I don't have a, a great answer to. I think it's a challenge. You know, social change. Oh, well, one thing, social change will happen and it's always happening and it is inevitable. It's just how does it, how do you, how, how do you direct that change? And I, I don't see a single singular solution. I do think some of the classic points about the need for collective action still ring true. That I think that we shouldn't just rely, which I think a lot of the environmental movement does, on just individual strategies. So I totally think it's true that we also take some personal responsibility and try and not you know, reduce our own carbon footprints and resource use and so forth. But I think that focusing on individual action leads to a misunderstanding of the problem because it implies the problem emerges simply because of personal choices. When so much of what's happened is driven by structural forces and particularly 
big decisions that are made by the few people in power, the, the heads of corporations, the heads of government. So I think we need to have a explicitly collectivist, politicized action rather than atomizing uh, our solutions into individual uh, independent decisions independent of one another. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by the politics of this? I mean, what, 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 what are the politics of climate change as you see it if we want to move society in a different way? Well, I mean, I think the, I mean, the politics of climate change is making some ra- radical and enforced movement to stop using fossil fuels immediately. Um, and I don't think we see serious action on that really almost anywhere. I mean, there's definitely some countries that take the issue more seriously and make some efforts, but they still tend to be in these half sense of half measures. So, I mean, I guess maybe a sad a sad thing is in America we don't have much of a politics of, of preventing climate change. We have uh, some you know talk about small measures. Why do you think that is? I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who care deeply about the situation we face, about climate change, about the future. Why do you think that's not translating into people demanding something different? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think there's some elements, which I know actually in, in your own work you know a lot about. There's definitely um, cultural features that are not, uh, you know, that are, there's a, a lot of the actions of those in power are not just to immediately control politics. They're to control how we think about and understand things, right? And that's a lot of the, the work, like I said, I know about your, your work, um, addressing things like from the Frankfurt School tradition that understands cultural hegemony, how a lot of the, the bigger battle is to shape how we even ask questions about these issues. And that goes back to the point I, I just made earlier about often I think environmental problems are framed as individual level decisions. And so the climate change problem is about your and my personal decisions about how often we drive or what we eat. Not to say those don't matter, but as opposed to framing it as in the end, this is about who controls most assets in society, who controls production, who controls uh, corporations. That is a lot of what the cultural shift is, is to focus us on our individual decisions and not on on the concentration of power. And that shift is happening how exactly in your view? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, part of it is, you know, corporate action is, is, is diffused in all forms of culture. I mean, it's in what's funded. I mean, advertising is the banal and most obvious form of how um, product production and consumption and, you know, corporate activity is framing, it's framed. But that's also how we're very much funded in, in schools. I mean, you're actually now the, the hostility on the right wing against critical race theory. Note that even though that's not explicitly about an environmental issue, it is a way of not even talking about how we created inequalities in the first place, about the legacy of colonialism. Those are the kind of things we would need to challenge if we're going to transform society in a way that will uh, overcome environmental problems in a deep sense, I think. So a lot of those corporate actions come through funding those types of cultural battles and cultural politics, in addition to the very direct use of economic means in funding corporate power. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but a lot of what you're talking about is based on your own research, your education. You're drawing a lot on theory. Uh, you know, some of these terms are going to be not of everyday use for most people. 
I guess I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to what is theory and why is it important in the context of understanding society and, and how to deal with questions like climate change? Well, that's a good, you know, good question. I mean, I think you know, theories, in a, in a very general sense, are really explanations. And that's, we want to go beyond uh, surface appearances. We want to understand processes and how and why things happen. And I think that is that often we, um, you know, in a simplistic sense, we will explain things, as I think economists often do in an atheoretical way, is, well, the reason we, you know, use fossil fuels is people want to use fossil fuels. The reason we drive cars is people want cars without asking the deeper questions of why is it that we have a car-centric world? How did that come about? Um, how did that unfold historically? How is that perpetuated? That's where I think theory is centrally important to ask those deeper questions about underlying processes, to identify kind of structures, features of context that shape how we behave. So we don't slip into simply accepting superficial explanations. And you've made a very good argument about the, the role of education. You've, you've explained theory and so forth. I guess I want to take it just one step further and ask you about the role of academics in society. Obviously, you teach and, and do research, but do you think it's incumbent on academics to do anything in addition to that, particularly around acting on the work they do? I certainly think it's true that in a lot of uh, fields, and that's common in the social sciences and humanities in particular, the idea that we do have uh, kind of obligations to engage and be activists in some in some sense. And I know that you know there's the one tradition of we pretend to be uh, you know objective and always removed from society. And I've always said that's not that's always been a bit of a fiction. Is of course you can't live in a world and be indifferent to it. Everyone has views and preferences. I think a lot of the critical tradition in the social sciences and humanities is to acknowledge that we have concerns, we have values, we have politics. That doesn't mean we don't try and do objective research, but of course what questions we ask and what we're trying to figure out is intrinsically tied to our values and our preferences. And I think when you're looking at a world that has um, both you know, a huge environmental crises and huge social injustices where we have you know, wars and we have uh, you know, racism and colonial legacies and, and, and sexism, it's not reasonable to expect people to be indifferent to those things. So I think it's a perfectly important part of academic life is to say, we want to understand the world and as, as, as scientists, but we also want to act on it and try and find ways to try and address some of the concerns, some of the problems we study. So I do think that's not uncommon. And indeed, I think that's a valuable part of the academic world. Part of what you just described is actually acting on this this research and this information and so forth. I'm wondering, you know, beyond just you as an individual, how do you think about how we're going to shift society? That is to say, we have all this information, we know the problems. Yeah. What do you think we can be done to engage people in different ways so that this information resonates such that they act? Yeah. Well, I guess I, I find that that's a very hard question. Um, I, you know, one of the fallbacks is always that we hope education matters, and I hope it does, but it, it, it's surprisingly frustrating that it might not have the effect we we don't we it doesn't necessarily have the effect we want. I do think, though, education beyond our formal roles in the classroom, it is to try and think creatively 
to get people to understand how we got into our circumstances and to provide a vision for a better world. And that's to say, don't just accept that our life is about the way we've grown up. We're supposed to have cars and consumerism and a house in the suburbs. We could actually look around the world and through history and across cultures to have present different visions of how humans could live their lives. So in that sense, part of what we need to do is not just talk about how the world is, is to provide some vision of a better world that we can imagine getting to. And based on your own work, I'm curious if you have, if you could see anything changed in society, what are the top few things that you think you would want to implement or act on immediately to make some kind of change? I mean, the most direct sense, I do think we should um, uh, ban a fossil fuel extraction and, and really say that fossil fuels are not private assets and no one has a right to extract them. I mean, that would be the most direct political thing. Um, I think in the, in the, the less direct from that is the challenging of, of inequality of wealth. That, that, is a radical, that would be a radical restructuring of wealth. I mean, in the immediate sense would be things like wealth taxes and uh, very steep uh, income taxes for the, the super rich. Uh, I think a more radical vision would be some you know, transition to some version of socialism that uh, does not allow you know, a few people, a few billionaires to control most assets or large share of assets in the world. So those are some high-level issues. I'm wondering, how do you talk to people at a local level who are wondering about how they can engage in a way that addresses these broad-scale issues but is based in their communities? Yeah, that's a a good question. I mean, I think one of the points I'd make is simply only focusing on community-level action has limitations because we do need some larger political vision. But yes, of course, we all live locally and want to take action. And so I think that is in our own communities, doing actions that create communal solidarity to address things for people in a, in a, in a, a way that we can see. And so I think that's look at local problems of, of people of poverty, of homelessness, uh, and tie those into challenging, I mean, this could depend on the community, uh, you know, developmental projects that lead to sprawl to make more houses for the rich instead of thinking about how do we make housing accessible to everyone? How do we ensure that everyone has access to food? So I think that some of those things could be community-based programs that focus on helping people in an immediate, and, in immediate sense that they can see and connecting those with our uh, our protection of the local environment. I mean, that's very that's still a general answer for you, but I would say that that community action that's based on um, collectively working for something that has clear benefits to people that's not tied to, per se to businesses or profits. I, I think these are really interesting examples. I think many people just don't have a good sense of either the scale of the problem or what to do about it. And one of the things you invoke is this notion of visions. How do you, how do you see this moving forward so that people do see different visions of possibilities in the future? What, what, what could contribute to that visioning process? I mean, I think part of that is, is, you know, is, is all kinds of media and art. I mean, it's discussions like the one we're having, which is to say none of us know the answers. We should actually see these as questions. I, but I do think that's the role of the, the uh, a role for, by no means alone, but for artists, for writers, for um, teachers, to, to raise that as a question, to say let's actually have an active discussion about 
what we want out of life in the world rather than just accepting it as it is. And I think some of the practical things are just raising issues like um, more more vacation time, shorter working weeks, um, you know, more more opportunities to to meet with our fellow human beings rather than buy and consume things. Um, I think those kind of discussions that can be raised that challenge the status quo and help us to think. And I do think that has historically been the role for, for the artist. What do you think about this issue of people being so overwhelmed by climate change and the various problems we have that they're not acting and just feel defeated? I'm sure you're probably seeing that with some of your students. How do you think about that and, and what can we do to, to get out of that? That's a challenge. Because I would say that's part of our, our role is we need to teach people about how severe the problems are, but not lead to this kind of what you're pointing to, this kind of sad fatalism where we all give up because it's such a, it looks so daunting. Um, but that's another question to which I wish I, I had a, a, a clear answer because I'm not sure what the answer is to that. But I do think um, it is to try and come up with how giving people options to engage, to say that we can do something and that involves us trying to work on better ways to change our lives, that our lives in cooperation with uh, other people. I want to ask you a little bit about your own perceptions. I mean, what, what do you think about all this? Are you, are you overwhelmed and defeated, defeatist, or, or, or do you see some, some possibilities moving forward? Where, where are you? How would you characterize that? Sadly, Brian, I'd have to say I am... Um, I, the state of the world is very sad, and it, it is hard at times to envision the changes we need to happen happening. Um, and that has to do with, you know, the extreme amount of concentration of power um, in particular, and just the direness of the situation, how immediate it is. You know, as you note the, the latest IPCC report, you know, we don't have a lot of time to deal with the climate change crisis. And I'd add that to biodiversity loss and a number of other uh, environmental uh, crises. But uh, I do try and remain optimistic in some elements to say that um, I do think it is possible that we can have rapid change. And indeed, that's a lesson from history, that many things that seemed immutable in the past changed. And I guess give one example, you know, the horror of the vast, slavery system that characterized the United States through a lot of its history. Um, There was, at at some point it came, centering on the American Civil War, where slavery came to an end. And that certainly had, we still kept, you know, racism, sadly, and, and racial inequality, very sadly and tragically. But something important did happen. And I even know, going back further, I would imagine in the Middle Ages, the feudal system where you had monarchs that had the concentration of power, that would have seemed immutable, but of course that has changed. So I do think if you look historically, things that can seem uh, impossible to change, do change, have changed, will change. I don't necessarily know how that will happen. In some ways, it's the nature of history has a lot of unpredictable elements. I'd more see it as there could be opportunities in emerging historical moments that could uh, lead to new options. So in that sense, I do have some degree of optimism. But yes, indeed, it is hard at times to look at these things and not get uh, very, very discouraged. 
I want to end with three questions. And, and the first one is an extension of the last question. And I'm curious, what do you see in society specifically that you find inspiration from? What, what gives you inspiration? You know, I have to say, I, I do admire the activists I've seen and things like the, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. You see a lot of, I think that's happened a lot in, in younger generations have actually become quite skeptical of, of, of capitalism, have become quite skeptical of the standard operation of our, um, of our world on, on racial and economic and other fronts. So I, I do have some degree of hope that there is uh, you know, some new awareness and emerging concern and willingness to, to question how things are. So I try and take some inspiration from that. What are some examples of something you've read or seen recently that has really prompted you to think more deeply or differently than in the past? Um, oh, gosh. That's, yeah, interestingly, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying the book uh, The Dawn of Everything by Graeber uh, and Wengrow. Um, which is kind of a, you know, a, they're kind of doing an archaeological history and reinterpreting archaeology. They're kind of anarchists. They're, you know, questioning this, the, the inevitability of uh, hierarchies and centrality in states. And I, I, it's an interesting book to think with um, because it has that, let's not always assume that history unfolded in, a, in the neat narrative we're often given. That maybe there were a lot of different options for the kinds of societies we could have. And then lastly, I, this, you know, I, I suspect that some of this can be quite overwhelming for you. I'm curious what you do in the day-to-day to find joy and peace. I like to walk my dogs in the woods. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that's essential for me to get out into nature. I really do appreciate where I live. There's a lot of beauty around. And, of course, you know, friends, you know, time with our, our, our fellow human beings. Uh, you know, eating and drinking with friends and family is, is very meaningful. Um, so I, I think that that is, you know, there's a lot to appreciate in our lives. Well, that's a very nice way to end. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. It was a real pleasure. I really appreciate Richard joining me today on Crossing the Chasm. I have personally benefited greatly from his work and really found his perspectives interesting and provocative, especially around higher education and thinking about what we as a society can do to address the problems we see. I want to thank, as always, the executive producers for Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips, Cody Bayless, and Chris Flores. And as always, thanks so much to Anodyne Diversion for the music. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. I hope you enjoyed the show and tune in again another time. 